Good to be with you all. Uh, if you're new, I'm Pastor Brand. I'm excited to be here to start a new series that we're calling Biblical Church Leadership. And it's a, uh, gonna go for the next four weeks and we're launching from the Gospel of John where we saw the commissioning of Peter to shepherd the flock of God. And we covered John 21 last Sunday and wrapped up that study of the Gospel of John. And so now we're going to set the foundation for how we understand the nature of the church and the nature of leadership in the church. Now, after we cover some of these important topics and, and talk about this, we're going to be studying the book of Acts starting on Palm Sunday. And we're going to be working through the book of Acts through the spring and all the way through the summer and into September. So join us for that. Okay, last Sunday, I ended by giving Peter the last word from 1 Peter chapter 5. Now this Sunday, I'd like to start our new series by giving Peter the first word from an earlier chapter in the same letter. Now after many years of faithful shepherding in the early church, this is what the Apostle Peter wrote as he defined what the church is and Jesus as the cornerstone. You'll see it on the screen. This is 1 Peter 2, verses 4 to 10. This is like our teaser passage, not our main passage for this morning. Peter wrote, As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe... The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. There's a theologian named Ed, Edmund Clowney who, who points out the language in this passage that recalls the Old Testament descriptions of Israel. A chosen people, a royal priesthood. A holy nation, God's special possession. And what Peter, a devout Jewish now believer in the Messiah Jesus, what he does is he applies these terms to all those who believe in Christ, who trust in the sure foundation of Jesus, the cornerstone, the one who fulfills all the Old Testament promises of a Savior and has now redeemed us through his mercy and grace at the cross and in his resurrection. In other words, be very clear as we get started this morning. The true church is only founded on Christ. And the true church only consists of mercy receiving sinners who trust in Christ for salvation. 
And then God, as this passage describes, God builds us together, brick by brick, if you will, becoming a visible community of faith, a spiritual house, a family of worship and witness. That's the church. See, this is the good, uh, uh, sort of the start of a good theology of the church. And our series on biblical church leadership has to begin with a message about Christ, the cornerstone. Because here's what I want to make really clear as we begin this, this time together today in this series. Jesus Christ is the head of this church. Can I get an amen? <laughs> He's the head of this church. Jesus is our chief shepherd. He is the cornerstone. He is the one who has called and redeemed and established us here with this particular group of people in this particular place at this particular moment in time. He's in charge here. And our passage this morning is a paradigm-setting passage. It sets us on the right trajectory. It makes sure that we know why we're here, and it elevates Christ as supreme. So, open with me to Colossians chapter 1. Grab a Bible and open to Colossians 1. If you need a copy of the scriptures, we would love to have you follow along as I read. So you can raise your hand if you need some uh, or a copy of the Bible. We're going to be in Colossians 1, verses 1 through 23 today. And this morning, we're going to walk through one of the most important passages about the supremacy of Jesus as the head of the church. Now, it's really important that we get a little bit of background before I read the text, because it'll help to illuminate what we're going to see. The background here is that this letter was written by the Apostle Paul to a church in the ancient Greek city of Colossae. Now, he wrote this letter while in prison in Rome around 60 AD. And if you read this letter, it becomes evident Paul's writing to address some kind of false teaching that was undermining the gospel. Apparently, these Christians have been led astray into something that claimed Christianity, but was clearly not aligned with the true message of what Christ has done. Now, one commentator put it this way, the most dangerous part of the false teaching in Colossae was that it wore the mask of Christianity, that it did not deny Christ, but it did dethrone Christ. It gave Christ a place, but not the supreme place. And so, friends, this is exactly what happens today. There are churches and denominations today that claim the name Christianity, but have dethroned Jesus or substituted the idols of pop culture or political planks or human tradition or authority or new definitions of moral truth. You can find any YouTube preacher to suit your version of Christianity, if you want, for your itching ears. So what does Paul do here? Because Paul's addressing very similar kind of situation we find ourselves in. He begins his letter with a specific prayer that elevates Christ as supreme. Points to the gospel and calls us to faithfulness as God's people. See, he offers a positive picture of Christ as supreme and head of the church. So with that, let's read Colossians chapter 1. We're going to pick it up in verse 1 and I'll read through verse 23. So follow along with me. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to God's holy people in Colossae, the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ, grace and peace to you from God our Father. 
We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all God's people, the faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven and about which you have already heard in the true message of the gospel that has come to you. In the same way, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf and who also told you about, also told us of your love in the Spirit. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives, so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, and being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you, might have, you may have great endurance and patience." And giving joyful thanks to the Father, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel, this is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature in heaven, of which I, Paul, have become a servant. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. All right, here's what we're going to do as we look at this wonderful passage, is look at three foundational truths or three reminders that Paul gives to this church in Colossae in this passage. And you'll see them on the screen here. What he does first is he makes clear a description of his role as a leader in the church. Then he gives a clear description of, uh, sorry, he, he makes sure that these believers have a right understanding of the gospel. And then thirdly, he ensures that they elevate Christ as supreme and surrender to him as head of the church. So Paul's role is what we're going to look at first. Then we're going to look at this right understanding of the gospel and then elevating Christ as supreme. So Paul achieves, let me just pause for a moment here. Paul achieves these three reminders by bookending this passage with a description of his role. 
Then it moves towards the middle by asserting a right understanding of the gospel. And then at the center of this passage is a hymn of the early church about the supremacy of Christ. So what we're going to do is we look at these three different ones. It actually follows the flow of the text is that Paul describes in these bookends who he is as a leader, right understanding of the gospel, Jesus as supreme in the center of the passage. So let's look at Paul's role. Verses 1 and then verse 23, the ends, the beginning and end. Paul begins and ends this passage with two specific terms that describe his role in the church. He deliberately bookends this beautiful opening section by making sure these Colossian believers know what his leadership is all about. Look at verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Now skip to verse 23. He talks about the gospel that's been proclaimed to every creature in heaven, and then he ends this way, of which I, Paul, have become a servant. He uses two specific and unique terms here. The first one is apostle. This means a sent one, a delegate, a messenger, one sent forth with a special orders or with a special assignment. Now, when you hear this word apostle, some may wonder if this role of apostle is still a biblical office for the church today. It's been debated throughout church history whether there's still a special apostolic authority or apostolic succession. So what's the best way to understand this as Paul calls himself an apostle? If you look at the evidence of the New Testament, the office of apostle was for those specially commissioned by Jesus himself to spread the gospel in that first generation of the church. But as the church age unfolds, as even the New Testament unfolds, we see the role of apostle becoming a little more generalized, like it becomes a spiritual gift, it becomes something that God uses in the leadership of the church, but the leadership of the individual congregations is handed over to elders as Paul and his companions appoint overseers in the local churches. So I think it's proper to understand this concept of apostle, that Paul has a unique calling, he says, I am an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God because he was uniquely commissioned by Jesus himself on the road to Damascus. And yet it's also proper to remember or to know in a general sense, we are sent ones. We bear the message of Christ in word and deed where we go. That's what it means to be a church that fulfills the great commission. So maybe we can talk about that more in the Q&A time afterwards if you want. But that's a little bit about apostle. The other term he uses is the term servant. Now, this word describes someone who executes a command on behalf of another. It's an action-oriented word. Being willing and, and humble to serve. It's often translated as minister. And so Paul is a minister of the gospel. He's serving God by serving the church. He's bearing witness in his sacrificial service to the truth of the gospel. So these two terms together paint a picture of the motivations and purpose of Paul's role of biblical church leadership. He bookends this display. He, he, he bookends these things as a distinct sense of humility and servant leadership for Paul. He's on assignment He's accountable to Jesus. He's serving others. He's not here for himself. 
These priorities that Paul lays out here can easily get sideways and some, sometimes resulting in church leaders who make ministry about preserving their own power or authority or protecting their reputation or earning accolades or more advertising revenue on YouTube, saying what people want to hear. Instead, what Paul describes here is this sense of distinct humility and servant leadership that changes everything. Now, this is exactly the kind of situation that the reformer Martin Luther found himself in, in about 500 years ago. Against the abuse of authority and false doctrines of the late medieval Catholic Church, Luther asserted that the only true churches and the only true church leaders are those who preach the biblical gospel from God's word. There's a Reformation scholar named Alistair McGrath. He described Luther's view this way. He said, what legitimates a church or its office bearers is not historical continuity with the apostolic church, but theological continuity. It's more important to preach the same gospel as the apostles than to be a member of an institution which is historically derived from them. This was Luther's understanding. This is the heart of a portion of the Reformation or the, the, one of the doctrines of the Reformation of, of Luther, that he saw this change that needed to happen in our approach. In other words, we have to ask ourselves, is Christ the cornerstone and the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ the center of our doctrine in life? If so, then we're a part truly of the church of the living God the pillar and foundation of truth that endures through generations, as Paul says in 1 Timothy 3. Okay, we've talked a little about Paul's role, his humility, his humble service in the church. Now he makes sure that these believers have a right understanding of the gospel. So let's go to that next section. So you can go to the next slide there, talking about the right understanding of the gospel, verses 3 to 14 and then 21 to 22. I'll just say right at the outset, and I, I know I read a lengthy passage this morning. We do not have time to dive into every detail of this part. I've preached on this section before of Colossians 1. So I'd recommend if you want to go into more details here on this particular portion, there's a sermon you could listen to from July 17th, 2022 that would be helpful. But what I'd like to do here is to simply walk through some key concepts that Paul uses to frame up what is most important when we consider what it means to be a gospel-centered church. Here's what he outlines. Who are gospel people? The first thing he describes is that we are holy. That's in verses 2 and 22. He calls us, he calls the church, God's holy people. Ones who've been reconciled to him. That because of what Christ has done, we are without blemish and free of accusation. Because of Christ's work on the cross, we are holy in God's sight. Second, we are family. Verse 12 and verse 21. We're no longer strangers, as Paul says. We're now children with an inheritance. We're the family of God. We're co-heirs with Christ. You're a part of God's family now. Thirdly, we're rescued. Verse 13. We are forgiven 
and rescued from the dominion of darkness. Friends, God, through Christ, has snatched you out of the kingdom of darkness. Wow! He has brought you in by his grace into the kingdom of light, the kingdom of his beloved son. We are holy, we are family, we are rescued. What does Paul now say about what gospel people are marked by? He says that we are marked by faith, hope, and love. Verses 4 and 5 and then 23. We have faith in Jesus love for God's people, and we have a hope that is eternal and secure in heaven. And so these are the markers of who we are, faith, hope, and love. And then he says further that we are also marked by good works, verses 9 to 12, that through the empowering and transforming spirit of God, we can know God's will and live in ways that please him, not out of obligation, but out of joy, out of love for him. This is how Paul outlines a right understanding of being a gospel-centered church. Who we are and, and what we're marked by. What's the uniqueness? And these things, I want you to see, these things flow from what we have received. The gift of our salvation. We're made holy in God's sight through Christ, made a family through Christ, rescued by Christ, and only when we're secure in that reality of his work on our behalf do we then have the empowering Holy Spirit and working his work in our life to grow in obedience and faithfulness. See, this is where Paul gets to the heart of the matter. Now, remember, we've been working our way towards the middle. If you've been following along on some of those verses I'm mentioning, we started at the, ed at the edges, and we're now working our way towards the center of the passage. And now, Paul comes to the center of this text, the supremacy of Christ in verses 15 to 20. This is where we need to spend a little time pondering. See, these verses are some of the most beautiful and glorious descriptions of Jesus. I'll remind you what I said at the beginning. I want to approach this with the right mindset. Jesus Christ is the head of this church. And Paul captures some of the most important words in the entire Bible to help summarize or see the supremacy of Christ to be founded on him, the cornerstone. Now, if you don't know this, this section of the text it's believed was a hymn of the early church. This was a song. And when you look at even the Greek New Testament, it's actually written like song lyrics. It was likely that these verses were sung corporately by the early believers. And Paul is reciting one of their own songs to remind them of who's at the center. So let me take a few minutes and walk you through these incredible verses as we, because it's a song, exalt Christ together. What we see in this song, and starting in verse 15, is that Jesus reveals God to us. Look at verse 15 with me. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. This, there, there's a play on words here because this word image and invisible are set as a juxtaposition to each other. The idea of an image is like a mirror. 
it's showing you the reality of who somebody is. It's reflecting back who they are. And then the, 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 it's, a, it's a reflection of someone. And so Jesus is the visible reflection of the invisible God. He makes the unseen nature and character of the immaterial God a seen and physical reality. This is emphasizing the deity of Jesus. He's God in the flesh. He's the revealer of God. As we saw in the Gospel of John, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Verse 16. Jesus created all things. Wrap your mind around that. <laughs> There's an important feature here of Jesus in his role in creation that is unique it's a unique claim of Christian doctrine. Look at the end of verse 16 with me. Okay, we see all things are created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. In, in other words, everything. All things have been created through him and for him. If you're an underliner person, through and for. Two of the most important words you can find in this paragraph. And here's why. Everything was created through Jesus, meaning he's the instrument of creation, the, the, the one by whom the triune God made everything. But it's not, we can't just stop there. The word for is just as important. The purpose of creation is for Jesus. In other words, everything exists for his glory, for his pleasure, for his purposes. Jesus himself is the purpose for which you were created. We could just, I mean, that's like the, that's the mic drop right there. We could just stop there and like go on to, to ponder that for the rest of our lives. If we try and take a minute to wrap our minds around this, the, you have to understand this. The reason you exist is not for yourself. You don't exist to make money. You don't exist for your own pleasure. You don't exist for your kids. You don't exist to make your parents happy. You don't exist for your job. You don't exist as a meaningless pawn in the vast scope of history. You exist for Jesus Christ. He made you and he loves you. Verse 17. Jesus holds everything together. Jesus is the reason there's a cosmos and not chaos. Can I put it that way? <laughs> He's the reason why there's order and design and purpose. He's the instrument of creation, the purpose of creation. He's also the sustainer of creation. Every aspect of the created order in all of its goodness and beauty relies upon Jesus from top to bottom, from beginning to end. He holds everything together. Verse 18, Jesus is the head of the church. This is a wonderful metaphor. If you've ever stopped to pause and think about this, the head, when you think about a body, the head gives direction. The head leads the body. The head is where you think. The head is where you direct all the rest of your faculties. Without the head, there's no control over the body. The whole body's dependent on the head to tell it what to do, to guide it in all of its functions. And so Jesus is not merely Lord over creation generally. He is Lord over 
the church, the very people whom he has made as a new creation. You see, his lordship is a living relationship. I love this metaphor of the headship because it's a living, breathing metaphor, relationship. You see, the head and the body have an organic connection. It's a connection that's living and breathing, the flow of blood and the, the, the breathing in of air, all the things that connect of your nervous system. That metaphor helps us to see that we must pursue a relationship with Jesus to abide in him, to trust in him, that he's our source of life. The only leader of this church is Jesus himself. Okay, lastly, Jesus reconciled us at the cross. See, this is really the heart of the gospel and what it means to be a gospel-centered church. The text says very clearly, Jesus achieved peace by dying on the cross so that we would be reconciled to God when we trust in him by faith. There is no other gospel, no other cornerstone of our faith than the risen Savior Jesus. He is the head of the church, the giver of life, the protector, the sustainer, the only Savior. Friends, we could go into more detail here, but these, these are glorious truths. It would take a, a lifetime to wrap our minds around the implications of the supremacy of Christ. But here's how I want to end this morning. I want to take some time, as I, I did over the last few days this week, to ponder some practical ways that our approach changes when Jesus is elevated as head of the church. I want you to think about, and I just came up with a list of some, some things that will set our proper perspective for being a Christ-centered church. Here's the first one. We pray. We pray. We pray because we are dependent upon Jesus. Friends, I need you to know this has become a renewed burden on my heart. Personally, and also for us as a church. That when we talk about the supremacy of Christ as the head of this church, we must pray. It is the chief exercise of faith, as John Calvin said. Really trusting and being dependent upon him who created us, who is our source of life. I want to, maybe I'll invite you to this or say it a different way. Um, it's a renewed burden for me, but also for our elders. We've been talking about this over these last weeks. Our elders together want to lead the way by inviting you to a time of prayer and sharing about the vision of our church. So two weeks from now, Sunday, March 10th, we just, we, we just scheduled this because we feel this burden to invite you to do this. From 6 to 7.30 on March 10th, we want to provide dessert and some childcare, but we want to, what we're calling an all-church kitchen table. Like, let's sit down at the kitchen table, have a conversation about what's going on in our congregation, and pray together. See, a lot's happened in this last year. There's a lot of things ahead of us. 
We want to acknowledge some things that are difficult or have been, and, but also looking with anticip- anticipation and hope towards the opportunities that are in front of us. We want to talk about ways that we're going to grow our leadership, discuss plans for moving ahead with the building renovation, things that we want to do. But most importantly, we want to pray. Prayer is our expression of dependence. It's us coming together to renew our commitment as a congregation to Christ as head of our church. Especially at important inflection points like this in the moment of our church family. So we'll tell you some more details about that later, but think about, please join us for that in two weeks. Okay, the next thing I was pondering this week that's related is that we humble ourselves. Remember, you saw Paul's approach, his humble servant heart. We humble ourselves because this isn't about us. It's about Jesus. We have to continue to make Christ the center of our attention and exalt him. Above all, thirdly, we serve. We love and care for others like Jesus. The DNA of our church is to serve others. We want servant leaders. We want servant volunteers, people who sacrificially care and love for others like Jesus, who came not to be served, but to serve, modeled after him. Fourth, When Jesus is supreme, we aren't afraid. We aren't afraid. We trust in the sovereign power of Jesus. Boy, you read the news, you you think about things that are happening in your life and my life. No matter what this world throws at us, we will not succumb to fear because Jesus is supreme. Fifth, We know what is true. What is right and good is revealed by Jesus. We have God's self-revelation, the pinnacle of it in Christ himself, the word made flesh. We also have God's word in our hands. We know what is right and good when Christ is supreme. Sixth, we have hope. Our future is secure in Jesus. In other words, we don't worry about tomorrow. We trust in the promises of God. And then lastly, we are loved. We are lavished with the unmerited favor of Jesus. Friends, you need to hear this this morning. You are God's beloved child. Bask in the goodness of his grace. There's definitely more that we could say. I felt like seven was a good number. (laughs) But there's more that we could say. This is a good start, right? If we continually remind each other, Christ is the head of this church, the chief shepherd, our cornerstone. We trust in him. We will see all of the wonderful ways that that transforms who we are, and our perspective on life. So let's pray together. Lord, we uh, are so grateful. We're grateful.